Well, it is my great joy to uh, open the Word of God, Galatians chapter 5, and just listen as I read 13, 14, and 15, these verses in Galatians chapter 5 to get us going. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I'm going to harken back to uh, some history just to get us started. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, or Roosevelt, depending on where you're from, I guess, uh, FDR, was in office January 6th, 1941. World War II was happening, and this was an important speech in Congress. And he shared during the speech a kind of world that he wanted to see after the war. He envisioned four basic freedoms to be enjoyed as a country. These are freedoms that are under assault and under threat today, but listen to his vision. It was, number one, freedom of speech everywhere, two, freedom of worship everywhere, three, freedom of want everywhere, and four, freedom of fear everywhere. Now, from that time to modern times, I think we have seen progress in these areas. These are good freedoms, good liberties that we enjoy as U.S. citizens But we are, as Christians, in the threat of losing some of these freedoms or for things crumbling, and we fight for these freedoms. But there is a freedom that is the Christian freedom that's missing from this list. It's a freedom that is assured to all who have the Holy Spirit, who are part of the body of Christ. This is the fifth freedom, and this is the freedom from the guilt of our sin. This is man's greatest need to be free from himself and the tyranny of his or her sinful nature. It's the fifth freedom that all everybody really wants, whether they know it or not, this kind of unshackling of the guilt of people's sins. Even people in the world want this freedom. They're pursuing it at all costs, whether they're trying to cover it or mask it or deny it or run from it. But this is spiritual Christian freedom that is promised to believers within the church. This is the fifth freedom. This is the freedom that we all are given the opportunity to enjoy. Our country, our culture in modern times is crying out for freedom, a different kind of freedom, a world's freedom. Freedom is on everybody's lips today. They want to be able to do anything or act in any way they want to act, even denying their masculinity or femininity, just throwing things aside, caution to the wind, having whatever they want with no repercussions, no accountability, and no guilt. Now, within sane America, we know that even sane non-Christians know that we can't live in that way and be a free society. Freedom has common limitations of law and order. However, people more and more through the media and through 
whichever way you want to imagine, uh, are hearing and propagating a world's license, a world's freedom. But there's nothing new under the sun. Um, Sin originates in the heart. It originated in the hearts of Adam and Eve at the fall. This is a cultural cycle of repetition where we're sinning in ways and in trends that have been sinned in the generations before and the generations before and the generations before. It's just that modern day accessibility is exposing our sins and tempting sins in the culture at extreme levels today. We are Corinthianized today. Sin And its machinations in the minds and the hearts of people are constant. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David said. In sin did my mother conceive me. But I have to say that the sins of our world and the sins of our culture are not limited just to them. These sin patterns do creep into the church as we've talked about the paganism that can creep within the church, but also the sins of the mind and the heart are still there. Though we as Christians are no longer enslaved to our sin nature, our sin natures nevertheless exist. Romans seven eighteen, Paul said, as a believer, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right and not the ability to carry it out. There is that kind of failing dimension in the life of a Christian when a Christian is not yielded to the life of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 leading into chapter 6 is about the life in the Spirit, is about living by freedom that we are given. And we need to get into these texts to, to understand what it means not only to break the back of legalism in our lives and get out from under the shackles of trying to do good our way to righteousness, but we need to now learn how to enter into the life and joy of the Holy Spirit. Galatians is called, has been called the Christian Manifesto for Freedom. It's also been called the Declaration of Christian Independence. And so far, we've been learning about the path of legalism and how it leads you to despair. It's people trying to outwork their sin or work off the guilt of their sin. And Paul has made it clear he's been disarming this bomb or dismantling this error, making it clear that this is a dead-end pass. It's, It's faithless, it's lifeless, it's joyless. But in verses 13 through 15, Paul, for a moment, flips the coin. He's been talking primarily about the dangers of legalism, the depression of legalism, of feeling like you have to earn your keep with God. And now he begins to anticipate a temptation that will well up in the heart of someone when they are told that they are free. Because you are not under the law, and he is concerned that saying that, and he's made a concrete gospel case for that, now that the picket fence of people's hearts within the church will swing way to the other side, not into Christian freedom, but into a worldly freedom of licentiousness where people say, well, all bets are off. I guess I can do whatever I want to do. I'm signed, sealed, and delivered for heaven, so I'm going to live life on earth any way I want to. 
Well, both paths of legalism and licentiousness or libertinism, worldly freedom, are paths that lead to death. They're both to be avoided. The path of licentiousness has crept up in the church today. People in modern times in the church, whether you call it a denomination or a network or whatever, people are drinking themselves drunk in the church. People are viewing all kinds of media that they are not supposed to view and rationalizing that with the gospel. They're saying, look, grace has changed everything and so I can do anything. People are doing that. People are watching pornography and they're justifying that rationalizing it saying it's under God's creation or whatever ways people will pervert truth they want no constraints whatsoever they might say something like since I am free from law keeping I'm going to express this freedom with reckless abandon well Martin Luther confronted this uh, back in the Reformation time with kind of a funny parable about a peasant who left drunk from a bar it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke but the peasant went out and tried to get on his donkey to ride home and he went up on one side of the donkey and slipped off and fell on the ground and then he got up on the other on the donkey again and slipped off on the other side and one side of the donkey is the represented as him being in the mud and muck of legalism and then he tried to get up on the donkey and fell on the other side and that is the mud and muck of licentiousness And Luther's counsel is, as a Christian, we need to learn how to sit on the donkey. Sit on the donkey. We have to learn how to not fall into one or two extremes. These extremes have been likened to two streams or two rivers going from earth to heaven. The stream of legalism is clear, sparkling, and pure, but the waters run so deep and furiously that no one can enter it without being drowned or smashed on the rocks of its harsh demands. The stream of license or libertinism instead is quiet and still, and crossing it appears to be easy and attractive, but its waters are so contaminated with poisons and pollutants that to try to cross It is also certain death. Both streams are uncrossable and deadly. One because of impossible moral and spiritual demands. And the other because of moral and spiritual filth. Now I'm taking a lot of time to outline these two categories. Because these are the two basic categories of sin that masks itself as Good paths, which are really bad paths, but these two really are the broad other paths to be avoided. And to understand what is to be avoided, hopefully, is helpful for you as you try to walk the right path, which is the gospel path. What I'm doing this morning is I'm trying to define for you Christian freedom according to Galatians Five. What does it mean to be truly free within the gospel? Not what the culture wants, sin with no consequences where nobody's really going to get hurt, right? But instead, a gospel freedom where your joy is welling up inside of you. Where you have, as a Christian, new capacities to love people that you never thought you could love before where you can walk in a Christian life that is others-centered, a life that is fulfilling and genuinely satisfying 
by Christ. This is the sacred golden freedom that is promised here. You're a slave of something where nobody is truly free, right? In one sense, you're either, as I said last week, a slave to sin or a slave to God. This is the path of freedom through becoming God's slave. Point one is Christian freedom is not the world's freedom. Let me just unpack verse 13 as much of what I've already introduced. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Let's stop there. Remember, the purpose of being a Christian is to be free. The purpose of being saved is to have life, not to re-enter into some kind of Christian drudgery where you just keep failing and failing and failing and never measuring up. That's legalism. That's the wrong-headedness that is satanic within the church. But at the same time, Christian freedom is not the world's fleshly freedom. It's never something that gives us permission to sin. Paul is reaching out to his brothers affectionately here. You see that in verse 13. And he's saying that people who aren't Christian, they, they want to possess a freedom, but that same kind of worldly freedom is the the freedom that you could try to find even as a believer, but you're trying to find it within your own flesh, your own sin. So Paul's established and reestablished that we aren't under legalism, but he's now correcting a different misconstrual of truth, and that is the sin of licentiousness. The idea that a person's freedom or liberty Uh, needs to, as a Christian, not be something found in the inside, in our flesh, but a Christian freedom that's found by a heart that's motivated outwardly where you want to serve other people within the body of Christ. I want you to see that distinction. Paul is saying that there is a real temptation in the heart of a believer, a person who is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, a person who wants to do the right thing and is not doing the right thing, a person who continues to stumble and bumble around, even as a believer, into old sin patterns that are of the world. And he's unlocking why that happens. And he's basically saying it's when a person understands their Christian freedom, understands their gospel position, understands they're going to heaven, but instead of launching from that understanding into a life within the body of Christ where you're serving other people, you instead go inwardly and you look inwardly to gratify your own flesh. You shouldn't do that, but that's what believers will often do. Instead of looking outwardly, they will look inwardly. Paul is saying that there is a single temptation here he wants to confront. Look at this in verse 13. Only do not use your freedom in this way. Only, manon in the Greek, only. I want you to pay attention to this single warning label in the Christian life. Here is the warning label. Here is the skull and crossbones On the container. This is what you do not want to allow yourselves to do. Freedom will tempt you in this way. You've been called to freedom, but not to apply it in this way. Don't plug this newfound reality into the outlet called your flesh. Don't do it. 
The word opportunity here, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity, is a military term for beachhead. People will set up a beachhead on their flesh in terms of like a military command center or a military post where all kinds of rationale and all kinds of work will be done in terms of trying to gratify your own flesh even though you are a believer. Opportunity here is a beachhead where armies of indulgence could gain a foothold in someone's life. An opportunity plays out like this. It's really someone rationalizing why they can still sin even though they're dead to it. Is that practical enough for you? It's where we rationalize doing the wrong thing based on knowing we are secure in Christ when we shouldn't because we also know that we are dead to our flesh unless we choose to be alive to it. It's the battle that rages inside of us, and we can give opportunity to it. What is the flesh? And I think this is an important term to define. It's an important New Testament term. It's the word sarks. Our flesh is not just our physical bodies, though they are wasting away. Though Paul teaches that our outer tent will be cast off when we go to heaven until we are glorified at glorification. When at the second coming of Christ, we will be reunited with our bodies, but it will be different than before, though recognizable. I don't understand all those things. Paul didn't really either, but he did describe the fact that our outer man is in a state of decay and decaying right now. It's because of the fall, because of sin. Just as all of the creation is in a state of digression, our spirit should be growing in a state of progression to be like Christ. But we also have a dimension because we're more than just bodies. We are people with the inner man where we are affected and tainted by sin still in our lives. Our sin flesh is more than our physical bodies. It's the passing pleasures and desires that used to rule over us before we were saved. We read that earlier from Titus chapter 3. We were, we were ruled by various passions and pleasures. Jesus rebuking the Pharisees says, Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. We're, we're no longer enslaved to our sin, but we still have, as one person put it, a sinful hangover, even though we are now renewed and saved. We're no longer morally bankrupt, but we still struggle with what William Barclay called the old age called our flesh. It's what man has made himself in contrast with man as God has made him. Our flesh is man as he has allowed himself to be. The flesh stands for the total effect upon man of his own sin and his father's sins and all of Man's sin that has gone before him except for one man, and that is Christ. So we're living in this stream, in this trajectory of sinfulness that's passed down from generation to generation. And even though as Christians we're new creatures in Christ, we still have the flesh. We still have this lower nature, though it is crucified. Look at verse 24 of chapter 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's like it's this sin nature that's still wriggling and, and, and heaving 
and, and moving around, though it's pinned to the cross, it's still there. It's still what we fight against even as believers. The flesh is powerful. It is to be resisted. It is to be fought against. It is to be mortified. It is to be being killed all the way in this lifetime, though it will not ultimately die until we are face to face with Christ. This is the warning. Do not set up a beachhead for the flesh. Do not set, do not set up a command center through rationalizing. I'm going to keep these pet sins going on in my life behind the scenes that nobody really knows about. And I'm going to do that to my own detriment, to my own lifelessness. Don't do that. That is the warning label of verse 13. What is one of the rationales that someone could use to justify their own flesh? I'd invite you to look over at Romans chapter 5, right at the end of that chapter, verses 20 and 21. Paul is really dethroning sin in his letter to the church in Rome, saying, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading, through, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Talk about great gospel theology. This is heavy artillery for the gospel. What happens in a person's flesh when they're given this kind of security in Christ, this kind of triumph, this kind of witness of the gospel? Well, Paul heads this off at the pass, quoting what he's hearing within the church. You would think people would say, well, I want to worship Christ. I'm secure in Christ. I want to be excited to serve other people. But in Romans 6, 1, he quotes what he was hearing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's how, that's a beachhead that was in somebody's heart. Hey, I'll just sin more so that more grace will abound. I'll just keep doing that um, so I can magnify grace by sinning on a deeper level. Talk about a way of perverting good gospel theology. This is the sin of testing God. Remember Jesus being tempted when he said, you do not put the Lord God to the test. This is trying God's patience saying, I know I'm a Christian, but I'm going to sin my way just in my freedom, just, you know, thumb my nose at God and who cares what he does. There's no real accountability anyway. That's the rationalizing away of a person's Godliness. What did, how did Paul answer that? Romans 6, 2, he says, By no means, exclamation point, may Ginnata, don't do this, may it never be. How can he, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Calvin said about this kind of man, he said, They try to extend Christian liberty to include everything without exception so that nothing may hinder him or prevent him from having a good time. These frantic people, this is back in the 1500s or 1600s. I mean, these frantic people, he's diagnosing then. Remember, nothing new under the sun. Without any distinction, they abolish the law, saying that it is no longer necessary to keep it since we have been set free from it. There's no sense of biblical moral accountability in a person's life when they give over to these kinds of rationalizations. They're like Israel, In the days before a king, Judges 21, 25, you should have it memorized, right? It's the last verse of Judges. In these days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what's going on in the church today. It's the world's freedom. Gordon Fee, he said this, just to summarize, he said, just because I am lawless, meaning law, we're not under the old covenant law anymore, just because I'm lawless doesn't mean that I am lawless. It doesn't mean that I have no moral accountability. I was reading about what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, there are people who are coming to Christ, supposedly, to get out of hell. He said, you don't get salvation just to get salvation out of hell. You have to be saved from sin, not just saved from hell. If you're trying to be saved from hell but not be saved from sin, then you're really not saved from hell. Do you see that? You don't just try to get fire insurance so I'm saved from hell. You, you have a heart that's changed where you want to be saved from sin. And if you want to be saved from sin, then most assuredly you will be saved from hell. But if you just want to be saved from hell, then you might not really mean business with God where you are saved from your sin. It's like being a prisoner who is a thief, who wants to be saved from prison, but doesn't want to be saved from thieving. They just want to get out of prison, but then they're still a thief. But the gospel is more about, is about having a nature that is changed and crucified. So anyway, so the, the first the first point that, uh, that we've talked about here is Christian freedom is not the world's freedom. It's never permission to sin. And secondly, in verse 13, we are introduced into what the Bible speaks of here. It's a new kind of slavery. Remember, you're either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. An application of being a slave of Christ, though, is being a slave to each other. A slave to each other. However many of you there are here this morning gathered. The word of God calls each of us to be a slave to each other. There are 51 and others, over 51 and others in the New Testament about praying for one another, serving one another, you know, greeting one another with a holy handshake. I don't know. I mean, you know, there, there is, that was a joke. You, you some of you um, Bible geeks will get that. All that to say, um, we are called to here serve one another. Verse 13, but through love, serve one another. The Greek word for serve is doulete. It's an imperative command. It's saying be a slave to one another. You are each other's slaves. We are those who shouldn't be looking inward with our freedoms to indulge the gratifications of our flesh, but we look outward to each other and say, I am free in Christ. I am secure in Christ. I am standing on the gospel of Christ. I am standing in grace. The guilt of my sin has been washed away. The joy of my heart is bubbling over. And so I can look at other people and I can serve them as if I'm their slave and I am free in that. That's gospel freedom. That's way different than just saying, hey, I can do whatever I want, whatever's worldly in this world because I know I'm secure in Christ and I'm not earning my way to heaven so I have freedom to sin. That's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom is the freedom to serve each other with reckless abandon, to give where it doesn't make sense 
from the world's perspective to give. This is Christian community. This is built on the foundation of Christian freedom. Christian freedom is practically based on serving one another as if you were owned by each other. This is a life that says, I cannot live or do my life anymore as I please. One illustration I that just comes to mind in this is having children. Uh, once I had Riley, who's now an 18-year-old, once I had her, my life changed. It was great, you know, and, and I willingly, gladly, you know, sacrificed all kinds of freedoms to bring her along, and we, you know, packed her up in jogging strollers. Judy and I ran a 5K one time, you know. Life's changed a little bit, you know. I'm up in the night just a little bit, but then we, then we had Logan. Then you have a couple, and then it's a double jogger, right? And you're like, okay, this is bigger now, you know, and they're close. And then Emmy came along, and so then it's three of us. So now it's two strollers, so your life was something that you used to have and you used to enjoy and you used to just be free and spontaneous. All that spontaneous spontaneity went away. And a buddy of mine and I were having a heart-to-heart conversation climbing a little mountain in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. It was the one mountain that was there on Pinnacle. And as we got about halfway through that climb, we both kind of agreed, man, having three kids, is, that's about right for us. That's good. You know, this is a guy I grew up with. I mean, we've known each other since eighth grade. We're still best buddies. We're having this conversation heart to heart. It's great. It's awesome. And then suddenly twins happened. And it's like, wow, I just supersized. And I, I didn't just, and it's not that I supersized in fun. I supersized in, you know, pain. That was, and I'm not talking about Judy's pain. I'm talking about my pain. I mean, this was hardship. It was sleeplessness and, and, and rough. And, and so then, then we're done, 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 and then Owen. And so, I mean, what? But that's, that's what it's like being a Christian. You, you literally, when you turn your heart to Christ and Christ takes away your, the guilt of your sin, the tyranny of sin's lordship in your life is broken, and then you choose not to indulge in your flesh, but you choose to give a life giving to others. And when you buy into that, it does fill your heart with joy, but it is an outward focus rather than an inward focus. You are freed to be a slave. It's the Christian paradox where it comes by meeting other people's needs for God's glory while God fills your soul with satisfying joy. That's Christian Freedom. Liberty is not license, but it's the freedom to serve other people. Paul might have been thinking about the children of Israel when he wrote this, by the way. The whole Bible story, big picture narrative of Israel that was in bondage and then set free. They were free from Pharaoh to become God's slaves. Exodus 4.23, and I said, God was counseling Moses what to say to Pharaoh here. He says, let my son go that he may serve me, speaking son, speaking of Israel. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That was God's message through Moses to Pharaoh. Exodus 19, we know there was great deliverance. This is right before the law was given. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Next verse, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
this kind of enslavement is different than the world slavery. Our servitude, our posture of servanthood is being possessed by God whom we love, who knows, whom we know loves us. Exodus 20 verse 2, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But don't, I mean, what I want you to see is all of this new enslavement to God and to each other is built on relationship. And it's built on one key word for relationships, and that is the word love. Do you see that in verse 13? But through love become slaves of one another or serve one another. Through love. Love is the glue that makes this work. This is why we would want to be owned by someone else because of love. Liberty plus love equals serving. Liberty minus love equals license. Where you're just inwardly focused doing whatever you think you should be doing. Do you remember how the first ordinance that was given to Moses after the Ten Commandments were given? It's the beautiful picture of the slave becoming a bond slave. Who learned that in Sunday school? Who still winces at the outcome of having the slave after six years of work? There's six six years a slave, and it's when a Hebrew would purchase or buy another Hebrew slave. They were to be freed after six years. It's a person, though, that loves his master who's been treated well, who has a relationship in that. The master in this context actually chooses a wife for the slave and and the children are all owned as a family under this master. But the master-to-slave relationship is less like some sort of purchased item and more like a family member. And so this servant loves his master and loves his family in this situation so much that he could walk away as a family and a freed man, but the master is someone that he loves and he doesn't want to leave. So God's word says you bring that person before God and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, which that always just sicked me out in Bible class, I got to say, and he shall serve him permanently. But it is the beautiful picture of this kind of loving glue that glues people together within the body of Christ. Slavery to each other is your choice to make, but it's the only choice you will make when love is happening in your heart. There's a story I read about where it was Carl who had an extra day off one week, and Carl told his wife as he walked into the kitchen, I think I'll use it to fix Donna's bike and to take Larry to the museum, the trip he's been talking about. And the wife says, fixing a bike and visiting a museum hardly sound like exciting ways to spend the day off. But Carl immediately replied in this way, it's exciting to me because I love my kids. That's where the Christian life becomes exciting. It's not obligatory. It's fueled by love. Let me introduce verse 14 just to get us going. We're going to have to make this a two-parter. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul here is saying that the Christian's freedom is your whole life. This is not just a part of your life. This is not just Sunday morning life. This is your whole life. We are slaves to each other, loving each other 
as an aim of our whole life. And it's a simple formula. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other as you would love for your own needs. As much as you would care for your own needs or your own family's needs, love each other in that way. And Paul has a way of boiling everything down in one sentence, doesn't he? He's boiling down the entire law, fulfilling the entire Old Testament law by saying, I'm just going to quote Leviticus 19.18 here. I'm not even going to quote you know, the Shema passage of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself. I'm just going to quote the last part of that just as a way to just boil everything down. If this is firing in your life, if this kind of love is firing in your heart for each other, then the fulfillment, the intent of the law is happening before our eyes. In a single command, he brings this about. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Now, is he saying that we are kind of obligated to fulfill the whole law? Is, the, is he contradicting himself? Remember Galatians chapter 5, verse 3 says, I testify again every man who accepts circumcision, which was part of the, which was the ceremonial act within the law, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Well, there's a different perspective here. This is not a contradiction. This is quite the opposite effect that's going on. Paul is affirming freedom from the law in verse 3, but in verse 14, he's talking about the freedoms that come by loving each other within the body of Christ and how that it fulfills the intent of, of the law. There's no contradiction here. Verse 3 is a obligation as if you're a debtor under the law. Verse 14 is the emphasis of freedom. Verse 3 is doing the law, doing the whole law. Verse 14 is fulfilling the whole law or being free. Verse 3 and verse 4 talks about doing the whole law, something that you're trying to mount up as as actions of works that you're doing, that you're trying to justify yourself by your actions. You're, you're trying to say, God, I am righteous because of my actions, which is unattainable. Verse 14 is fulfilling the law. That word fulfilled, by the way, is the Greek word plurao. It's the same word used in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled in the Holy Spirit. This is leading all into the end of chapter 5, not living out the fruit of the flesh, but living in the life of the Holy Spirit, producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The idea of whole um, in verse 3 is speaking in terms of obligations of doing it in its entirety. The word whole, different Greek word here, is talking about fulfilling it in its full intention. Verse 3 is a threat of judgment. Verse 14 is the freedom that comes through your expression of loving one another. It's fulfilled in one word, Don't we need things boiled down to sheer simplicity? Isn't our life complicated enough? There's so many varied and complex ways that we are supposed to love and serve each other that if it wasn't boiled down into this simple formula, I think we would all go crazy. We don't need a rule book. We need a relationship with Christ. We need the word of God to guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we enter into the lives of each other.